having reviewed the qualifications and nature of moral action and moral character, we are prepared to go over again briefly the moral attributes of God before concluding under the question, what do we know about the faithfulness of God from the Bible? We have seen that moral character from its very nature cannot be determined by anything except the actions of the one being considered. It is not something back of the will. It is not something fixed and permanent. If it was, it would not be moral character, which can only relate to choice. Moral character can never be ascribed to creatures who are governed by instinct, for they are under causation. The instinct being what it is, the action will follow of necessity. Moral character can only be ascribed to beings who are called personalities or who have that faculty of intellect which is capable of perception and understanding, who have an emotional quality of evaluation, and who have the ability of self-determination which we call free will. The Bible reveals that God is abundantly in possession of these qualities of personality and therefore capable of moral action. Then again, the intelligence of a moral being must possess moral light or that comprehension of moral obligation that will enable right conduct to be chosen. The Bible affirms God to be perfect in knowledge, so no single action need have any deficiency whatever in all its consequences. Having established the possibility of a chain of moral actions, we are now prepared to say that all actions do not have the same importance. There are executive volitions or choices to bring to pass things that have been decided. These cannot establish moral character, for they are detailed choices that have a direct relationship to other choices. These other choices are plans or purposes that have been determined upon as an intelligent means to fulfill a basic choice of the heart and therefore cannot be looked to for determining moral character. So in the fifth place we remark that having thus seen that moral character can be determined only by the ultimate or supreme choice which is of most solemn importance, there are only two directions that this choice can take. It can choose to be intelligent or unintelligent, or it can choose to fulfill its obligation toward all moral beings or not to do so. It can be either impartial or partial. It can be such that moral light can be invited without fear that anything wrong will be exposed or such that moral darkness is continually sought in an endeavor to cover up the true character of the heart. This is brought forth in the third chapter of John's Gospel, verses 19 to 21. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, 
that they are wrought in God. So when a moral being is conducting himself according to the true light that exists in all its relationships, there is a welcoming of all moral light to shine upon its pathway. The will may either choose to be loving or benevolent toward all moral beings and give them their due respect, or it may choose to be selfish and to be constantly dwelling upon one's own happiness. Thus the state of choice of all moral beings determines their character. Is God's moral character a fixed something back of his will, or does an abiding choice of the will determine God's moral character? Is holiness a fixed something, or is it a descriptive term relating to a voluntary state? To these questions it may be quickly replied that if God's conduct is a necessary outflow of some fixity of holiness, then his character is not moral character, but a conduct of causation. God would not then be a moral being to all our understanding of the term. Many theologians seem to treat the nature of God as a grouping of fixed attributes. Holiness is supposed to be one fixity, love another, righteousness another, mercy another, wrath another, and so forth. They seem to make no effort to synthesize the moral nature of God and to reduce it to the simplified form that the Bible presents. We need always to remember that the Bible was written for plain, simple folk. In harmony with this, it uses simple language. It was not intended to cater to the speculations of philosophers and have endless hidden meanings which it would take a lifetime to discover. Our Lord Jesus rejoiced in his prayer, you remember, that the essential comprehension of God's truth would be given unto babes or to those in spiritual humility before God and would be withheld from those who considered themselves wise and prudent before God. Our Lord spoke to an unlearned lady one time at a well in Samaria that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, as recorded in John chapter 4 and verse 24. He assumed that she knew that there was such a thing as an unseen spirit world and that she herself had a spiritual existence above the life of sin in which she was living. The Apostle John was peculiarly transformed by the grace of God from a son of thunder into an apostle of love. This name given James and John by our Lord must have indicated something of their quick-tempered disposition. John attributes this new life of tender love to God when he wrote, we ourselves are continually loving because he himself first did love us. A literal rendering of 1 John 4.19. He was recognized by the Lord as his bosom companion and followed the Lord even to the cross. John it is who was given to simplify the profound nature of God in the words, God is love as recorded in 1 John 4, 8. 
we above all things must see and understand what is meant by these simple yet profound words. Love as used to describe the moral character of God is not basically an emotional state. It is an attitude of will or a determination to bestow kindness on others. It is a state of good willing or benevolence. It is a voluntary choice to be absolutely impartial toward oneself and toward all. It is a continual decision to govern all actions according to the perfect comprehension of intelligence as residing in the mind of God. We have seen that God is in possession of this profound and perfect intelligence. It is the opposite of supreme self-interest or selfishness. It is to seek our own happiness only according to its relative importance in the full comprehension of truth. The same law of love applies to God as to man, of course. It requires in God to seek his own welfare first, but not to the neglect of all his moral creatures. By virtue of God's greatness and goodness, his moral worth is exceedingly greater than that of all moral beings combined. It is therefore right in God to consult his own happiness first. Man was created to contribute to the happiness of God, but in doing so he would find exceeding great happiness himself. When man lives in that same disposition of love that God does, man must conduct himself identically as God does. There is only one law of love. It is the law of truth or the law of fact. To man also God's happiness is of supreme importance. Therefore, to live a life of love is to live a life of supreme devotion to God. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We read in 1 John 2.17. To live a life of love is to regard the happiness of our fellow men equal with our own. This life is in accordance with the unalterable requirements of truth and can never be changed. It was so in Old Testament times, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verses 12 and 13. Here is a tremendous summary of the requirements of God over man. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Notice that God gave the regulations for man's conduct for man's good. It was also so presented by our Lord Jesus as recorded in the 22nd chapter of Matthew, verses 36 to 40. A certain lawyer asked him, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, 
thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, or on these two declarations is being suspended the whole truth as embodied in the presentation of the Old Testament revelations from God. It was also so in the propagation of the gospel, as recorded in Romans chapter 13 and verse 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It will be so throughout the endless ages of eternity. No salvation is possible apart from the reconciliation to the ways of God. The whole moral character of God, then, is embraced in the words, God is love. This disposition eliminates all selfishness and partiality. There is no respect of persons with God, we read in Romans 2.11. Everything God does then, he does for intelligent reasons. And if man will be reconciled to God, he too must uh, live his life for the same intelligent reasons that God does, or he must repent of all sinful ways. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for thy revelations of thy word, which simplifies the great and glorious being that thou art. Now we pray that many may respond to thy pleadings of truth, may repent of sin, be reconciled to thee, be willing to live the same kind of a life of love that thou dost live through the Lord Jesus Christ and through faith in his death. We pray in his name. Amen.